welcome, 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 I'm your host, The Heathen Machine. And here we are, episode number six. And I figured it was a great time to start diving into a topic that is near and dear to my heart, and that is psychedelics, specifically psilocybin mushrooms. Now, the transcript I will be reading from was actually a paper I wrote a couple years ago. Because I I realized that when talking about psychedelics and doing a lot of my own research on it, you know, you, I learned that society at large is still very ignorant to the powerful but positive effects of psychedelics and psilocybin mushrooms. So I know, I knew that it was imperative. It was important that Anytime I talked about psychedelics or wrote about it, I needed to do my research, have it very heavily science-based, and that is what I did. That is why I include all my citations in the podcast description, because if you want to do some of your own deep dives, do some of your own research, I would definitely welcome you to do that and start with some of these um, references that I found very useful myself. Now in future episodes, I I will go into deeper uh, details about how I came across psychedelics and my own experiences. But for the sake of this podcast, I wanted to focus on a very specific facet of psilocybin mushrooms and what they do to fear within our human brains and how it ultimately conquers fear. That's a bold statement, conquering fear. To conquer is to imply complete control or dominion over something, someone, someplace. But in this context, it makes perfect sense. Now, I'm an unabashed lover of Conan the Barbarian. So to illustrate this point of conquering fear, let's take a little journey. Detach yourself for a moment and let your imagination take over as we melt away into that long-forgotten era of the Hyborian Age. Clutching the mighty two-handed broadsword in your hands, you gaze across the sweeping slopes of the Sumerian Plains. Craggy peaks of black rock cut through the gunmetal gray skies, casting doubt over the land. You're Conan the Barbarian, black hair flowing free, Battle scars thick and calloused. Or you're the queen of the black coast, defiant as ever. Your companions are at your side. All steely-eyed, all fearless. They'll follow you wherever you go. They're with you, no matter what. You look towards the distance, at the churning, writhing mass, gathering like the high tide of an oily ocean. A horde of beasts howl mad curses and chants. 
stomped the muddied ground with cloven hooves, smashed rusted axes against tattered shields while swinging played banners. At the head of the horde is Lord Fear, the evil ancient enemy of all humanity. The Dark Lord sits high on a horse of rusted iron and decay. You can hear his raspy grating laughter over the din of noise as he whips his fear-loving denizens into a frenzy. But there is no fear. You hold your sword high, a signal. The ground rumbles and shakes. At your back, a hundred thousand strong army of warriors charges forward from unseen positions driven by the heartbeat pounding of drums and bellowing warhorns, eager for battle, eager to drive away the invading army of blackness once and for all. You look to your companions and smile as they smile back. Finally, this war is coming to an end. With all-knowing confidence, you charge into the fray, sights set on Lord Fear. The beasts were doomed before they ever knew it. Pretty dramatic, I know, but that's psilocybin. That's what mushrooms are, and that's what they do. They're your stalwart battle buddies, your 100,000-strong army of fearless warriors, ready to battle back the darkness for you. They're your gleaming broadsword and wind of freedom blowing against your face. Psilocybin conquers fear, but how? And why does it matter? We'll get to that, but first, we must take a look at fear and what it does to our mind and body. We all know fear. We've all felt fear, sensed fear. Fear throttles your body wide open like a whining supercharger, driving us towards what W.B. Cannon coined the fight or flight response. Fear has guided humanity through the jungles and woodlands and plains, across the oceans, over the mountains and across the deserts, Fear keeping us alive by keeping us alert, allowing us to hunt, to forage, survive. Fear is the most powerful emotion an animal and human can experience. And now fear has swept us into the 21st century, bringing all of our primitive drives, instincts, habits with it. Old fears taking new modified forms, twisting into confusion in an ever-changing technological age of detachment. And until fear is completely manufactured out of us with the inevitable implant that'll do just that, we'll have to accept and understand these parts of ourselves, our emotions, and how they activate the body from the top down. A mother fearing for the safety of her child has two choices. Stay, fight, allowing anger to steal her will as she stands against the perceived threat, or flee in hopes of finding safety for both. Death, a possible outcome either way. But she stays to fight, teeth bared, putting her survival at risk to keep her child safe. With primordial instructions pulsing across her cerebral cortex, her amygdala sends a signal to her hypothalamus, releasing hormones like CRH, or corticotropin-releasing hormone, which then stimulates a pituitary gland, releasing more hormones like ACTH or adrenocorticotropic hormones. Both of these hormones are released in response to stress and fear, real or imagined. Even fears you haven't experienced before but have seen on TV or in an image, fear or anger on someone's face, 
Even an unpleasant memory recall can trigger the fear-happy amygdala. That's how biologically wired we are to respond to fear. But it doesn't stop there for the mother. Cortisol and adrenaline flood her veins, increasing her heart rate, dilating her pupils. Her sight picture narrows into an infinitely long tunnel of hyper-focused vision, perception of time slowing just a fraction, palms, brows, slick with the sheen of sweat. She'll fight to protect hers or die trying. Recently, I shared an account of a personally significant firefight I was involved in. In that account, I attempted to describe the switchover happening as my body primed itself long before any rounds were fired. But in a combat zone, that charged feeling never really goes away. It just hovers at different levels of hyper-awareness and arousal. That predator-prey drive that stays at full tilt like a stuck transmission. And I quote from Dawn Patrol. Men, young and old, leer at us through weary, dark eyes. No women. Odd, but not uncommon. Still, though, a red flag raises in the back of my mind. Keying my handheld, I relay what I'm seeing, what I feel. Everyone's on the same page. We always are. Neck hairs bristle. A subtle shift occurs. Preteronatural perceptions gained from past experiences. Primal instinct, like when an animal feels threatened by something lurking in the dark. We've learned to trust those instincts. Something's off. End quote. Of course, now I know the psychological processes that were occurring. As a survival mechanism, we've been wired to read faces. Faces that look angry, depressed, suspicious, tick off the amygdala. And the cascade effect kicks in, even if only for a few seconds. So if fear is such an embedded part of who we are, what can we do about it? How could we do anything about it without, say needing to get some kind of implant out of an episode of Black Mirror. Imagine this. Let's say you were dying. You had terminal cancer, which is the reality for many of the participants in the two studies we'll be examining. Imagine the amount of fear that bog you down as you start regretting all those things you wish you would have done, wondering what's coming next. Time, the passage of it, would be terrifying. Imagine the depression it'd bring in by the oceans full, the detachment from life that inevitably would haunt you. The greatest collective fear of humanity is the fear of dying, the fear of death. But what if there was something that could even banish that fear, or at the very least, ease that fear to a manageable, even negligible level? Could you imagine the implications of such a thing? Well, there is an answer, and it can be found in nature, a gift born from a mycelial network with knowledge older than man, encoded healing from mushrooms, specifically psilocybin cubensis. What follows is a discussion of a pair of studies published in the Journal of Pharmacology, which explores how psilocybin can defeat fear once and for all. After laying dormant for nearly 40 years, psychedelic research has experienced a renaissance, science confirming what's already been known across the world for millennia. There's curative power in psilocybin mushrooms. 
And researchers Franz Vollenweider and Michael Kometer had this to say, and I quote, By 1965, there were more than 1,000 published clinical studies that reported promising therapeutic effects in over 40,000 subjects. LSD, psilocybin, and sporadically ketamine have been reported to have therapeutic effects in patients with anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorders, depression, sexual dysfunction, and alcohol addiction, and to relieve pain and anxiety in patients with terminal cancer. End quote. Following this untapped potential of science, Dr. Stephen Ross and Dr. Roland Griffiths conducted studies in 2016 on how psilocybin mushrooms eases cancer-related fear and anxiety. Psychedelics like psilocybin are 5-H2A receptor agonists, meaning they stimulate that receptor. Why is this important? Because the 5-HT family of receptors, better known as serotonin, are integral and the release of numerous chemical neurotransmitters and hormones that influence things like aggression, anxiety, learning, memory, mood, and sleep. Researchers Vollenweider and Kometer also had this to say, and I quote, The most recent work has provided compelling evidence that classical hallucinogens primarily act as agonists of serotonin receptors and mimic mainly the so-called positive symptoms, i.e. hallucinations and thought disorder, of schizophrenia, end quote. Many current antidepressant medications seek to target these receptors as well. The difference is, is that a lot, most of these medications take weeks to elicit any type of noticeable effect and may actually make symptoms worse. Besides, the long-term ramifications of pharmaceuticals is still unknown. So now let's dive into these two studies. It's worth noting that these studies took place simultaneously, yet were completely independent of the other. Each study more or less followed the same protocols, and each study eliminated as many influential variables as possible. Both used a double-blind crossover method, meaning neither subjects nor researchers knew what was being received or administered. There's also a crossover period, uh, meaning those that received the placebo the first go-around would then receive psilocybin the next time. And this was after the prescribed amount of weeks went by, and vice versa. The only major difference between the two studies was the placebo. In Dr. Ross's study, they used a niacin placebo, while Dr. Griffith's study tested a low placebo-like dose of psilocybin versus a higher dose of psilocybin. Between the two studies, a total of 80 patients were involved. Now, in Dr. Griffith's study, it included a wide variety of variables to determine the effects of psilocybin on overall well-being in conjunction with therapy. For example, phone interviews with family members, friends, work colleagues, and ratings of mystical-type experiences. In each study, roughly half of all participants had never used psychedelics, and safety and efficacy obviously were monitored. So what did they find? We'll focus on Dr. Ross's study and compare contrast with the study led by Dr. Griffiths. Researchers found that the group receiving psilocybin first, as opposed to the niacin placebo, 
experienced immediate reduction in clinically diagnosed symptoms of depression and anxiety following an administration and therapy session, showing that a, and I quote, magnitude of difference between the psilocybin and control groups was large across the primary outcome measures. Assessed at one day, two weeks, six weeks, seven weeks post-dose one, end quote. The psilocybin first group maintained these reductions even after receiving the placebo at the seven-week crossover. Prior to crossover, the placebo group didn't experience any significant drops in anxiety and depression. But after the placebo group received psilocybin at that seven-week crossover period, an immediate reduction in clinically diagnosed symptoms of depression and anxiety were shown. Participants rated their high-dose psilocybin experience as one of the most personally meaningful, experiencing positive behavioral changes and increased well-being and satisfaction. Not only were these increases in quality of life significant, but the duration for which the effects lasted were also just as incredible. Positive changes in outlook and attitude continued all the way up to the six-and-a-half-month checkup. That is huge. In Dr. Griffith's complementary study, findings mirrored those of Dr. Ross's. In Dr. Griffith's study, the group receiving a high dose of psilocybin first experienced immediate reductions in clinically diagnosed depression and anxiety compared to the placebo group. But when the placebo group received the high dose of psilocybin, all variations collapsed just as they did in Dr. Ross's study, meaning that after both groups received the high-dose psilocybin at the crossover, all parameters for measuring depression, anxiety, and well-being were the same in both groups. Both studies proving that a high dose of psilocybin was not only effective at reducing the fear of death, anxiety, and depression, but that those effects lasted for up to eight months. Yes, eight fucking months. I want everyone who is listening to let this sink in. The results of these two studies are absolutely incredible. I challenge you to find a current pharmaceutical medication that can not only change the way you feel, the way you think about life and death, conventional wisdom stating that our personalities are set in stone, but with just one dose in a therapeutic environment causes profound and enduring change. Nearly 60 to 80% of participants stated that their experience with psilocybin, the high-dose experience, was one of the most meaningful and significant experiences of their life, comparing it to the birth of a child, marriage, and other positive impact moments. That same number also maintained this positive outlook for up to eight months, fundamentally altering, for the better, their outlook on life, viewing death differently, and to top it all off, there were no negative side effects. And as stated by the researchers, psilocybin has shown time and again to be a safe and highly tolerable compound when used in the proper setting. As I've said, I will discuss my own positive life-changing experiences with psilocybin 
and how it's helped me with my own depression and PTSD and anxiety. But you don't have to take my word for it. You don't have to believe me. The proof is there. It is there in all these studies, the thousands of studies that have been undertaken to show how safe and effective psychedelics and psilocybin really are. I want to share with you a quote as I get near to wrapping this up. And this, come from, this comes from Dr. Roland Griffith's TED Talk he did a couple years back on psychedelics. And I quote, Excitingly, exploration of the psilocybin-occasioned mystical experience seems to provide a model system for rigorous and prospective investigation of these awakening experiences. Further research will surely reveal the underlying biological mechanisms of action will likely result in an array of therapeutic applications. And more importantly, because such experiences are foundationally related to our moral and our ethical understandings, further research may ultimately prove to be crucial to the very survival of our species. End quote. So there you have it, a very compelling argument as to why if you're somebody who doesn't have a history of schizophrenia or a very, very heavy mental disorder, why you should look at psilocybin as a viable mental health treatment. Now, I said this in the beginning, I'm going to get into more things psychedelic because set and setting are an important component of the psychedelic experience. You hear these stories of people having awful experiences, and it's typically because they're at a party, they're around people they probably don't like, and they're around assholes that will mess with them. And that's the worst thing. That's the worst environment to be in when you are under a psychedelic experience. Because when you are under a psychedelic experience, you're very easily influenced. Remember that amygdala, people think your brain is hyper, hypercharged, but it's not. When you ingest psilocybin, it, it puts your amygdala to sleep. That's why people freak out in that, that first 30 minutes, what I call turbulence. It is your, your mind and your body are suddenly experiencing this onslaught of experience because when you're not under that influence of psychedelics, your brain really limits the things you think, the things you do. But with psychedelics, it really opens that door. It is why some of the greatest scientific discoveries of this generation were done under the guise of psychedelics, like the discovery of DNA was done after an LSD experience. So I'm going to be sharing more of this stuff about psychedelics because me, it had such a profound impact on me in 2014. It led me to where I am now and it continues that the effects lasted. I'm due for another experience, but you know, these effects last for a very long time. And that initial experience set me on a course that I'm still on today. And that that's nothing to shrug your shoulders at. So if you're somebody who's been on the fence about psilocybin or psychedelics, I hope this podcast will make you think about it a little bit more. And also real quickly, uh, quickly, I, I, I've talked about this a lot, but I think microdosing is bullshit. And it's in that study that I realized that because when Dr. Griffiths gave this placebo-like effect of psilocybin, meaning like a microdose, 
None of the patients experienced anything. It was after the high-dose psilocybin experience where all the positive effects were accumulated. Not a microdose, not a low dose. So quit being a coward and go for the high-dose psilocybin experience because that is the only, you need to blast off to break through those barriers that are holding you back. A microdose isn't going to do shit. There's no science that verifies it, and it's all anecdotal, right? It's all placebo. It's just people answering it like, boy, I feel great after taking 500 milligrams, right? And I could be giving them a sugar pill, and they would think that too. All right, we're going to wrap this podcast up. Again, thank you for listening. I hope you learned something. Don't be afraid to reach out with questions or, or anything else. I, I love talking about psychedelics. I'm, I'm a huge proponent. Um, I think the tide is turning. And I think we're going to start seeing a lot more psychedelic-assisted therapy in, in the very, very, very near future. I think it is happening in some states like Colorado. Follow me on Instagram at The Heathen Machine. New episodes of The Heathen Machine Chronicles drop every Wednesday, and they can be found wherever podcasts are found. Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, so on, so forth. From deep in the Ozark foothills, Heathen Machine, out. Out.